Genesis 38, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And then what follows is a very interesting business transaction. And we move down to verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder how many of you in your family devotions, maybe at mealtimes or in your own personal devotions as you read through the Bible, have been uh, caught off guard by this story as you read through the book of Genesis. This story occurs right in the middle 
of the much more familiar, much more um, comforting, maybe, story of Joseph. And right in the middle of this story of Joseph, which is most of the second half of the book of Genesis, we're following the story of Joseph as he's betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, and goes through all the misfortunes that he faces in Egypt, eventually to save his family from a famine. But right in the middle of this story, we get the story that we read today. A sordid tale of multiple marriages, deception, prostitution, seduction, infidelity, and an attempted execution. The story of Tamar and Judah is complicated. It makes us uncomfortable. And I think this is why we don't hear this story very often in the church, because there's a whole ocean of cultural and historical differences that make this story really difficult for us to understand as 21st century North American Christians. But the Apostle Matthew includes Tamar in his genealogy of Jesus, and by doing so, Matthew tells us that if we want to understand the birth of the Messiah, if we want to understand the covenant history of God and God's people, if we want to understand what it means to be a disciple of the Savior of this world, we need to get to know the story of Tamar. So here we are. At its heart, the story of Judah and Tamar and the larger story of Joseph really is about inheritance. What will be the fate of the people of Israel, the people who God has chosen, the descendants of Jacob, who will be the heir that carries the family forward and bears the covenant promises of God for his people, the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is a huge question in the story as we approach this story, the story of Judah and Tamar, because Joseph, the oldest son of Jacob's favorite wife, one of the candidates to be his heir, is presumed dead. He's been sold into slavery in Egypt, and his brothers have convinced their father that Joseph is dead, so he can't be the heir. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn by his first wife, Leah, the most obvious heir to Jacob, has been disinherited because of his adultery with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, that occurs a few chapters earlier in Genesis 35, verse 22. So Reuben has been disinherited. The firstborn has lost his inheritance. He is not the heir. And Simeon and Levi, the next two in line, are disowned in Genesis 34, verse 30, for their violent murder of the Shechemites, which puts the family of Jacob in great danger. So as we enter into this story, we enter into this story with Judah, as the presumptive heir of the people of Israel, as the heir of Jacob's line. And so we see Judah carrying the staff, the cord, the seal, these signs of his status as an heir of Jacob, as the heir of Israel. Judah will be the one to carry on the family legacy. Judah will be the one to carry the covenant promises of God to God's people, 
Judah and his descendants will rule the people of Israel as long as Judah remains faithful to the covenant. And so that's the question that we go into this story with. Will Judah honor God's covenant? Or will he, like his older brothers, bring shame on his family through his unfaithful behavior? And the story sets us up right off the bat for disappointment. It sets us up right off the bat for a crisis of inheritance. The story starts off with Judah leaving his family to live among the Canaanites. Judah leaves the people of God to live among the people of this world. He takes a Canaanite wife who gives him three sons. He gets a wife for his son Er, a woman named Tamar. But Er is wicked, and God puts him to death. And so Judah gives Tamar to his second son, Onan, so that Onan can provide an heir for the family, an heir for his older brother. And this is where things get kind of weird for us in 21st century North America, because this seems like a really strange way of solving the problem of your firstborn son dying without a child. Just give him to your second son. Give her to your second son. Have your second son provide an heir. That seems strange, but that's how things were in ancient society. Everything was about the inheritance. Judah needs an heir. Judah needs a son to inherit the inheritance. And Judah's heir is his son, heir. That sounds kind of funny. Judah's heir is his son, heir. Okay. So if an heir dies without providing a son, it's the duty of the next of kin to provide an heir for the deceased. And we'll see this story again next week when we look at the story of Ruth and the kinsman redeemer and Boaz and all that. The issue there is inheritance as well. So it's Onan's duty. It's his obligation. It's his sacred covenant to provide a son for his dead brother. But it doesn't really benefit Onan to do this. It's not in his self-interest to provide his older brother, who's dead, with an heir. Because if Tamar dies without a son, then Onan is the heir. And he receives the double inheritance. He becomes the, the leader of the family. But Onan does a doubly wicked thing. Onan uses Tamar for his pleasure, while at the same time denying the covenant responsibility that he owes to his family. He violates both the covenant and Tamar's body for his own self-interest. And for this wickedness, God puts him to death as well. And so we find ourselves in a real crisis when it comes to Judah's inheritance. The text doesn't tell us whether Judah knows of the wickedness of his sons. And isn't it the truth that we all have blind spots when it comes to our children? Judah has given Tamar as a wife to two of his sons, and both of those sons have died. And so Judah comes to the conclusion that Tamar must be cursed. He is worried that Tamar carries an evil inside her, 
and that any man who marries her will die. Judah knows that he has an obligation to Tamar as her father-in-law. It's his responsibility to care for her as a member of his household. It's his responsibility to ensure that she has every opportunity to provide an heir for his family. But Judah is afraid. And so he crafts this careful lie. Sheila is too young to be married, he says. So go and live as a widow in your father's house until he grows up. But in his heart, Judah has no intention of ever giving Tamar to his third and last son. So in this ancient patriarchal society, what Judah is doing here is essentially abandoning Tamar to a life of shame. Unable to fulfill her duty to provide an heir, Judah marks her return to sender, back to her father's house, where she will live out her days as a childless widow, a burden on her family of origin, abandoned by her family through marriage, with no place in society and no one to care for her as she grows older. And Judah knows that this is wrong for him to do. But for the sake of the safety of his sons, he convinces himself that it's the best thing for everyone. Judah exchanges righteousness for safety, for comfort. And how often don't we fall into that same temptation to exchange righteousness for security? We see dangers all around us in this dark world. We turn on the evening news and we see all sorts of stories of famine and war and rumors of war, of violence, murder, rape and abuse, of stabbings and shootings and violent protests and police brutality and slavery and poverty. And it's our instinct to shelter ourselves from all this darkness, to protect ourselves and our children from the evil that is in this world. And so for the sake of safety, for the sake of security, for the sake of comfort, we compromise. We confess that our only comfort is in Jesus Christ while surrounding ourselves with earthly comforts that numb us to the suffering of others in our community. We concern ourselves with the sins of others and fail to tend to the darkness in our own souls. We build walls to buffer ourselves against the pain of the marginalized in our communities, filling our schedules and our homes with things that distract us from the very human and environmental cost of a middle-class lifestyle. We pack our calendars so full that we don't have space to build new relationships with people who are hurting. We fill our minds and our stomachs with so much entertainment and food and drink that we don't have space to think of the hungry or the poor. 
We fill our lives so full of earthly things that we have no room for spiritual things. There is no room in the inn of our lives. And here's the sad irony. The walls that we build to protect ourselves from the consequences of evil in this world, the barriers that we put up to keep the suffering of creation out of our lives, they keep us at an arm's length from the very people that Christ came to save. The walls that we build in our lives to keep us sheltered from the suffering of this world keep Christ out too. We fill our lives so full that we don't have room for Jesus, for the healing and the grace that he brings. If you travel to Bethlehem in the country of Israel today, you can't just walk in and see the place where our Lord was born. You have to go through a security checkpoint first, through a metal gate carved into a 30-foot concrete wall that the nation of Israel has built to protect itself protects its citizens from the Palestinian people that live in Bethlehem. For the sake of safety, a wall has been built around Bethlehem to keep violence, to keep suffering, to keep the darkness of this world at bay. And I wonder if there isn't an analogy to how we live our own lives today, to how Judah tries to protect himself and his family from the perceived threat of a cursed person. We build walls to protect us from suffering, but we end up building walls around the exact place where Christ is. We build walls to protect ourselves from the marginalized, but that is where we see the face of God. We build walls to protect our families from this world of darkness, but that is precisely where God's grace shines the brightest. The text, the story that we read for today, the way that it's written, it doesn't ask us to take Tamar's turn to deception and prostitution as an indication of her sinfulness. The text invites us to see her action as an act of desperate faithfulness. Tamar has been abandoned. The covenant of God is at risk because of Judah's unfaithfulness, and Tamar takes drastic action. She enters into a world of darkness. She takes Judah's sin on herself to preserve the covenant of grace that God has made with Israel. And through Tamar's work, God breaks through the walls that Judah has built up, through these fragile walls of self-deception and self-preservation, 
and brings him to a place of confession and repentance where he can receive God's grace. One of the things that always strikes me about the season of Advent, this season when we prepare ourselves to celebrate the coming of Christ, the miracle of the Incarnation, is how many layers they, there are to us celebrating Christ's coming. We remember not only the Advent past and the Advent future, that Christ came into this world and he will come again. But we also remember and pray for the present Advent of Christ in our lives. We pray and sing that just as the Son of God came to Bethlehem all those years ago, just as our Lord will come again to judge the living and the dead at the end of the age, may he also come now into our hearts to break down our walls, to cast out our sin, to enter into our lives, to build his kingdom in us. And so we pray. And we sing. As we prepare to celebrate the great things that God has done in Christ, we pray that Jesus would be born in our hearts today. To unclutter our lives. To tear down our walls. So that we can see Christ in the Tamars of this world. We pray that God would make room in the inn of our lives. So that Christ may enter into the darkness of our own hearts to shine his grace, to heal, to forgive, to restore, to bring the comfort of his grace and that everlasting peace that cannot be taken away. Tear down our walls, O oh Lord, we pray. Be born in our hearts that we may enter the light of your grace and bear that light into this world of darkness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people say,